If you like the sweet science, get ready to talk boxing on the Gloved Fist podcast with top boxing writers Frank Letirzo and Jack Hirsch. Frank, a former amateur boxer out of Philadelphia, writes for NY Fights and can be seen on the Boxing Channel. Jack, an amateur boxer who competed in the New York Golden Gloves, was a six-term president of the Boxing Writers Association. And now, here's Frank Letirzo and Jack Hirsch. And we're back. Welcome to Glove Fist, the best boxing la- learn and listen, listen and learn on the internet. My name is Frank Letirzo, former fighter, part-time writer, full-time advocate and observer, joined by former six-term president of the BWAA Boxing Writers Association of America, Mr. Jack Hirsch. We have a big show tonight. We're going to talk the current status of the welterweight and lightweight divisions. There's a lot of fights to go over. We're going to highlight Jimmy Young, former heavyweight contender of the 70s. Our anniversary fight is going to be the second fight between Sugar Ray Robinson and Jake LaMotta, the first time Sugar Ray Robinson was defeated as a pro. And we're going to have some fun with Mr. Nat Fleischer's ratings of the heavyweights in 1972. So, Jack, I'm going to kick it off to you. Hope you had a good weekend. We have a lot to talk about. And I'll let you kick it off, and I think I know where you're going to go. You're going to go with Gary Russell, right? No, no, that was the week before. Uh, oh, Keith Thurman, the welterweight Gary Russell. Well, Keith Thurman and Gary Russell share something in common, inactivity. It seems like both of them are businessmen. They fight when they want a big payday. They like to see the checks, you know, come in. And Keith Thurman, after more than two years out of the ring, following his loss to Manny Pacquiao, Good fight, good close fight against Pacquiao, but nevertheless, he lost. It's taken him over two years to get back in the ring. He fought a credible but safe opponent this weekend in Mario Barrios. Keith Thurman was a clear favorite. Mario Barrios was in reality a lightweight slash junior welterweight moving up to welterweight to fight Keith Thurman. So Keith Thurman was expected to win. The question would be, how impressive and he did look fairly good winning a lopsided decision he hurt barrios a few times along the way but didn't get him out of there and barrios's other high profile opponent his other previous loss was the tank davis so people are going to want to compare because those are the only two elite fighters barrios has ever fought And Tank stopped Barrios, I think, in 11 rounds. But Barrios was more competitive against Tank. So to me, I can't call it a tie. Thurman looked better against Barrios, but Tank Davis got the better result because he did something Thurman couldn't do. He got Barrios out of there before the final bell. What do you think? And he dropped him three times, Jack. And I don't know if you followed this, but a lot of boxing guys, and when I say a boxing guy, I mean a guy that knows boxing. I don't mean a historian who can look in a book and tell me dates and weights. I mean a guy that knows boxing. And there are a few guys who you and I both respect. And I noticed on Saturday, a lot of the trend was trending towards um, Barrios upsetting Thurman. We both had Thurman by decision. I agree with you. He handled Barrios better than Tank did, but I think there was a little method to that. I don't think Thurman really wanted to mix it up. I think he was hurt by a body shot that I saw in, I think, the fourth round. I think Tank also goaded Barrios into trading and opening up, and when he did, that was pretty much the end of it. I think it says more about Tank, his skill set, and how hard he punches for his weight. As far as Thurman goes, look, it's a good win. The problem is, Jack, these guys... They forget in this sport, no matter who you are, absence doesn't make the heart grow fonder. It's out of sight, out of mind. At one time, Thurman was the guy. He had some nice wins. But since then, Terrence Crawford, Earl Spence, Virgil Ortiz, and Jaron Ennis has emerged. And there are four guys right there who I would pick tonight to handle Thurman without any reservation. Well, Thurman is more like a businessman. He gives me the impression of a fighter who's ready to cash out, get the biggest paydays. If he wins, great. Then he's going to go on to the next biggest payday. If he loses, he's going to get well well paid. 
Errol Spence had been calling out Keith Thurman for the longest time, the same way Terrence Crawford called out Errol Spence. Right. And Errol Spence had been has been ducking Keith Thurman all this time. Uh, Keith Thurman ducked Errol Spence the same way. It's kind of like a merry-go-round, but now Keith Thurman is ready to fight Errol Spence, assuming he beats Yugas, uh, uh, you know, in their, fight, in their upcoming fight because that's going to give him a big payday going against Errol Spence. And, you know, and if he loses, he gets paid really, really well. If he wins, you got Terrence Crawford there. But I don't get the feeling Keith Thurman is really chasing greatness. He talks a little about it. He says he is. Right. When a fighter fights once every couple of years and is lackadaisical about it, they kind of become a businessman, such as this weekend there's a fight. Danny Jacobs is fighting John Ryder in England. Danny Jacobs, Jacobs has come on the, the classification kind of as a businessman, more or less. You know, certain fighters are chasing greatness, okay? But sometimes when they get to a certain plateau, they stop. I mean, the young bucks out there, you mentioned Virgil Ortiz, Jerron Innes. To them, it's a lot more than just the money. They want to be great at this point. Maybe when they become champions, assuming they do, and they get to a lofty position and they've made good money, maybe it'll be strictly about business to them at that point. Who knows? And your main man, who you love to mention, Tank Davis, I don't know what he's, you know, what his mindset is. As well, it's Mayweather's well. mindset, Jack. But as far as Thurman goes, it's funny how all of a sudden he mentions Spence and Crawford. Now that he doesn't have a belt. He's not getting the huge money that they're going to get if they fight each other. And I had forgotten about you guys. I would take you guys to beat Thurman also. And, you know, I don't think Spence is a lock to beat you guys. I think you guys brings a difficult style for him. That'll be a great, that'll be a fun fight to talk about. But look, Keith Thurman's made some noise. He's back. It's good for the sport. It's good for the division. But we have to see him in with some good guys. And on the undercard, a guy I like a lot, Leo Santa Cruz, who was also stopped by Tank, he got back in the ring again and scored an impressive win. And uh, I'm not sure I like him at 130. I think 126 is his division. I'm not sure he can make it. I'm not sure he has the punch to go with the 130-pound guys. But Leo Santa Cruz always brings it. He's an action-packed fighter, and it's good that he's back in the mix. Sometimes you wonder how these guys do business, Frank, how they handle their careers. Leo Santa Cruz's first defeat was to Carl Frampton. I was at that fight at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. A great, great fight. It resulted in Frampton being voted the BWAA's fight of the year. Then they have a rematch. Santa Cruz beats him. It should have been a trilogy. They should have had a third fight, and Santa Cruz probably would have won the rubber match. Yeah, I think he had his style solved. Right, but instead it never takes place, and you kind of wonder the matchmaking, how they do business. A fighter's really taking the best fight. It seems everyone is so scared of being beaten that they avoid that, that they avoid the fights they should have. They're not making the money they should have. So indirectly, they are getting beaten, even though it's not a loss on their record. We could look back at so many fights that should have happened. We could go back to Joshua and Wilder, Spence and Crawford. It's just a shame because I hate to keep going back to this, but I think Mayweather wrongly trained the fans. And now fighters have this insecure mindset. And there is some truth to it that fans don't care about them unless they are undefeated. And we both know that TV once undefeated guys to fight. No, no, I understand that element, but I wouldn't blame Mayweather. I just criticize Mayweather as far as facets of his own career goes, perhaps. Perhaps. But how do you argue with a guy who's made more money than any boxer in history? Yeah, that's exactly why. You made my point. Because he's undefeated, and that's what he traded off of. He traded off of being undefeated. No, no, my point is this. Guys don't fight when they should fight. A perfect example is going to be, there's a fight that's going to do excellent business in England that's upcoming, Amir Khan against Kell Brook. 
But Frank, the result means nothing to you or I at this point. They're both past their prime. Uh, it's kind of a little bit like an old timers day. Had they met when they were younger, the result would have meant a lot to their mean, legacy. Right, it means so, nothing now. No, it doesn't mean anything. But why are they fighting now? Because they have no other alternatives. They can't avoid one another. So they're fighting. Amir Khan can't get a big money fight against No, them. and neither can Kel Brook. Can't Kel Brook. So now they have to meet one another. It's there. They're fighting, you know, and if people want to see it, fine. But, it, you know, it is going to do really good business in England and uh, whatever, you know. So You know, it's funny. I bash Mayweather a lot and I disagree with you. I think he has a lot to do with the way fighters manage their careers today. But, you know, we never talk about regarding Floyd. You know, Jack, again, I think Floyd's a little overrated. But you could also make a case because he never really tested himself and pushed himself that we may not have ever seen the best of him. He may have even been better than what we think and what our perception is, but he never really had, other than Diego Corrales, that signature fight where he had to really dig down like Hearns did against Leonard, Leonard against Hearns. He dominated Corrales. He didn't have to dig down in that fight. That's what I'm saying. But, I mean, that was the best guy he fought who was undefeated at his natural weight and in his prime, and Mayweather dropped him five times. But I'm just saying, if Floyd would have fought the guys that were there when they were at their best, he may have been pushed more, and we may have seen well, even guys, a better version. The one fight that he kind of avoided early on was Antonio Margarito. Wanted no parts of him, nor Paul Williams. Floyd, but he, he would... He would have beat Margarito just too quick, shifting in and out. Or, or who else did you say? I'm not sure he would have defeated Margarito that fought Paul Williams or Paul Williams of that Paul night. Williams would have, Paul Williams would have been a serious problem because he was long and lanky and threw quick. a lot of punches, had power. Punches, absolutely. But uh, I don't think there was the demand, the pressure to fight Paul Williams as there was to fight Margarito and then later Manny Pacquiao. Those were the two fights that I would say he avoided. But Pacquiao was just as guilty as Mayweather during that time. I mean, they were both. Yeah, they should have fought in 2010. Margarito, Mayweather wins, but it's a better listen, fight. But it's hard to have sympathy for Antonio Margo Cheeto, you know, what he did with right. the hand wraps and all when you think of it. And, you know, and he did fight. I don't mean this to be a Mayweather segment, but he did have very good opposite. Gennaro Hernandez was an even money fight when they entered the ring at the time, even though I knew Mayweather was too good for Hernandez at that point in his career. Miguel Cotto was still a tough customer in there. Pacquiao went on a winning run after losing to Mayweather. But I know what you're saying, Frank. I agree. It doesn't compare. Yeah, Miguel Cotto, Jack, you but you know what? Miguel Cotto was devastated by Margarito and Pacquiao by the time Mayweather got him. Well, and that's my whole bit with Mayweather. If you look at all his big names, they were all, except for Corrales and Canelo, they were all defeated more conclusively by someone else by the time Mayweather got him. Okay, but let me play devil's advocate now. I'm only playing devil's advocate on one of my favorites, and I think one of your favorites, too, Sugar Ray Leonard. He's one of your favorites, right, Frank? He's one of the best fighters of my lifetime okay. since I followed boxing. Let's, let me play devil's advocate here. He beats Hearns the first fight, a legendary fight, and Sugar Ray says no rematch. You know, he wasn't, they fought eight years later and they only fought then because Sugar Ray felt, you know, Hearns had slipped a lot more than he had. It was a safe fight. Look, horrible against James Kitchen in his fight before. When he took took on Duran, some people were picking Duran. I picked Leonard by decision the first fight. But Duran really was a lightweight that moved up to welterweight. But he did beat Carlos Palomino, so I guess he did have a little... And he fought nine times above 145 before he fought Leonard. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. But I think the mindset may be a little smaller guy. Okay, I give him that. He fought Duran. That was a challenge. But when Leonard fought Hagler, he had to fight him because Leonard was considered past his peak on the comeback trail he had to give in and fight Hackler. There was no one else to fight where he could make a big payday and be on the big stage. 
So I don't want to say, oh, he took the challenge and fought Marvin Hagler. You know, he had to basically do that at that point. Jack. You know? Yeah. Jack, are you serious? Nobody asked for that fight except Sugar Ray Leonard. He was long retired. He asked for that fight. Now, I believe he asked for that fight because he saw Hagler's challenge. He wanted the And he challenge. knew that the name would be big on his record. And that Hagler would, had what? forgotten about him, but he knew Hagler would never turn him down. As long as Hagler got as much or more money and he got more, he was going to take the fight. But as much as I love Leonard, look, you're right. He thought Duran was a lightweight, would look good on his record. He didn't know that the Duran he fought that night was one of the greatest fighters of all time that night and would have beaten many great welterweights. As far as Hearns, he had life and death with Hearns the first time, and you're right, he made him wait. Second fight was a joke. Third Duran fight was a joke. But his run between 79 and 81, when he beat, he fought Duran twice, went one and one, beat Benitez before that, who was undefeated, Kalula, who was undefeated, then Hearns, who was undefeated. He has his signature wins and gets guys of all-time greats. I'm playing devil's advocate here because I'm a big, big Leonard fan. But when he fought Benitez, he had to fight Benitez because Benitez... That he did. He wouldn't be a champ. Right, right. The first Hearns fight was voluntary. It was a showdown. Kudos to Leonard. He could have avoided that fight. You know, and I always wonder the story that I heard that Angelo Dundee said. They were, you know, about a year and a half before they actually fought, a year and a half, two years when they were both hot welterweights on the way up, there was talk that that Mike Trainer, Leonard's manager, wanted to match Leonard against Hearns in Rhode Island, a ten rounder that was. I remember that. And Angelo Dundee said he killed the fight. He wanted it to get bigger. I'm going to tell you, had they fought that fight a couple of years before, I think Hearns outpoints him over ten rounds. And that's the, Jack. That's very plausible. That, Jerry Quarry's management tried to do the same thing with Frazier after Frazier went out to fight Scrap Iron Johnson, and they sparred. And I know a guy that was there, that Jack McKinney, and he said on one of the days they sparred, Quarry got the better of Frazier, and Quarry's people wanted to make the fight. Yank Durham shot it down. He goes, no. He says, let's wait till one of you had the title. It'll be worth more money, and you'll be more ready. So what would have happened, hypothetically, had Frazier, after that, entered the eight-man tournament when Ali was out? I mean, he obviously would have won the tournament, but no one ever discusses the matchups because what would have happened would have been uh, they substituted Leotis Martin for Frazier. So let's put Frazier in Leotis, Leotis Martin's place. He would have, that means Frazier would have fought Jimmy Ellis in the first, in the first round. He would have, first round, and he would have beaten Jimmy Ellis, guess, seven rounds or so, let's call it, in, thereabouts at that, in a fight like that. Because so Ellis is more in shape fight. back then, and Frazier isn't as good as he was in 70. Right. So Ellis wound up fighting Bonavina, but Frazier would have fought Bonavina in the second round. So the guess is, based on their prior two fights that went to distance, let's give Bonafina the benefit of the doubt that Frazier outpoints him over the distance. Maybe Frazier stops him, you know? But I don't see Bonavina winning in any No, in any 25 way. rounds, though, Joe that, never had him close to going, so he decisions that means him. Frazier and Quarry in the final in Oakland in 1968, which would have been one year before they first fought. So Frazier was better 14 months later when they fought, you know, June 23rd, 1969, as opposed to April 27th. So we would have seen the Frazier who fought Buster Mathis fight Quarry. Right. For the most part, would Quarry have, you know, who never could have beaten Frazier when he was at his best, would Quarry have maybe had an outside chance with a Frazier who was 14 months less experienced based on what you're telling me on the gym workout? I think it's plausible, Jack. I, I would pick Frazier, but I think it, there's a shot that the quarry, if they fight in April 68. But then again, if you take the quarry that fought Jimmy Ellis and match him up against the Frazier that fought Mathis, 
I see no. I see, I don't see an avenue for Quarry to win. Well, 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 no, no. Well, Quarry had a bad back. He had surgery on it after the Ellis fight, and Quarry did up right. The math is very widely, but you know, three months Quarry before he fought Frazier. Right, right. I could tell you if Frazier and Quarry fought ten times, Frazier would have won all ten. I could say that, okay. And I don't think, you know, I think you believe that as well. But if Quarry fought Mathis, you know, let's say they fought five times. I think Mathis wins one out of five. I think he would too, based on his style. He would, he would, he would decision Jerry one night. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I also think, I also think, and I agree with Pone Kingpatch that Ellis did look great. He took Leo Smart apart, and I'll tell you what. I believe if Quarry and Ellis fought three times, I think Quarry would probably win two of the three. I oh, think he had a better heavyweight career than Jimmy. It was close. Ellis told me that Quarry hurt him so badly and nearly knocked him out. But Quar if Quarry only knew how badly Jimmy had told me when I interviewed him while he was still alive, if Quarry would be so upset with himself, if he, he Ellis said if he knew how badly he hurt me, he had me on the way out. I can only guess that was the 13th round, like when he stunned them. That's when Quarry was coming on. Right, right. But uh, speaking of fights, Frank, what's our anniversary fight tonight? Our anniversary fight is the second meeting between undefeated Sugar Ray Robinson, 40-0. And on his way to 40-0, he beat LaMotta, Gennaro, Angot, Servo, Zivic, and Maxi Berger to, on his way to being 40-0, and he fought all of those guys basically, or, or four of the six, two times. He fights LaMotta, and they had fought two or three months before that. Robinson wins a decision, and now they have a rematch. Again, Jake had a 16-pound advantage over Ray. Nobody would fight anybody or, or either one of those guys. That's sort of why they fought each other. Robinson swallowed the fact that he was going to spot weight. And the fight was even, Jack, for about seven rounds. And then LaMotta really came on in the eighth, That's ninth, up there and tenth. But we'll take, we'll take Carmen with Sugar Ray. Right. Yeah, that's that's Basilio. Looks like the second fight based that's on Basilio's eye. Anyhow. Yeah. But anyhow, Robinson, or LaMotta really came on. Hurt Robinson, knocked him through the ropes in the in the eighth round of the fight. Some people say it was saved by the bell. Lamotta gets a decision. Now they're one and one. They fight three weeks later, and Robinson beats him back in a decision. But going into that second fight, Robinson was a three to one favorite. And I think the scores were 52 47, 55, 45, and 57, 49 for Jake. And as I said, Ray was a three-to-one favorite, and you, it says something about both of them, that they were so willing to fight each other, drop of a hat, fighting twice in three weeks. You'd never see anything near that today, and I laugh at the people that think that Robinson couldn't handle middleweights, because if you think about it, is it safe to say Lamont is a top 10 all-time well middleweight? Uh, it's arguable. We'd have to sit down and look at it. But if somebody said, Jack, I have Lamont in my top 10 all-time middleweights, you wouldn't say he was a moron. I wouldn't, I wouldn't off the top of my head. I'd accept it. If they said okay. top five, that would get my attention. Exactly. But top so 10, top 10 plausible. Yeah. And yeah, Robinson spots him 16 pounds and handles him. Yeah. In, yeah. In, well, they had in the second, third fight. They fought a total of six times. Sugar Ray won five. Lamada won when all was said and done, and that was the second of the two. But you you brought up a good point, and you have to consider when it came to Sugar Ray Robinson's greatness, he was giving up a lot of weight, you know, in all the fights. The only time well, Robinson was, I mean, Lamada was a huge middleweight. He he, yeah. he never fought at one sixty. All his bouts were over the weight, except for the title bouts. Then yeah, only for the last fight, the St. Valentine's massacre. He was only five pounds bigger. One right. You could call Sugar Ray finally a middleweight because he challenged right. that title. You know, the amazing thing was after Robinson lost to LaMotta, okay? Uh, well, he went into that fight counting the amateur contests 
on a winning streak of 129 fights in a row from the amateurs through to pros. Imagine that, 129 wins in a row. Then he loses to LaMada. And like you said, Frank, he beats him three weeks later, but he had another fight in between that. That's insane. Right. Can you imagine another fight between that? Now, can you imagine a couple of uh, top fighters in the world today? One beats another, tough, tough fight. Three weeks in the ring again? That's insane to think about it. Three months would be considered wild if they did something like that. They wouldn't probably face one another until like about nine months later, you know, or something. If you, if you think about it, Jack, it would be like Terrence Crawford fighting Jamal Charlo twice in three weeks. Yeah. It just, what are the, we'll never see that one time let alone twice in three weeks. And there is some discrepancy about Robinson being 85-0 and 0 as an amateur. I read he lost a few times as an amateur. I'm not sure about that, but the stated record was 85-0 and 0, and then the 40-0 going into the LaMotta fight. Well, that could have been, but we do know this. After he lost to LaMotta, I think in his next 85 fights, he didn't lose something like that after that. His prime record was 128-1-2. and two. With 87 yeah. knockouts when he lost to Turpin. Right. So he had a streak of so many wins in a row. You know, someday someone should sit down and compare Robinson's winning streak to Joe DiMaggio's. I guess Joe DiMaggio's hitting streak. I guess Joe DiMaggio's hitting streak is legend that people like to point to. But Robinson's would be right behind. You know, I think uh, DiMaggio's different sports and so on, but it's... Uh, Robinson yeah. has one of the best resumes ever. LaMotta was his career rival, and it says a lot that he beat him five out of six times, and the only time they fought when they were within five pounds of each other, Robinson won by stoppage. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But but great win by LaMotta, I mean, and uh, he always fought Sugar Ray tough. Sugar Ray was just, you know... I don't want to say in the league of his own because LaMotta certainly could compete with them and did. And even when the one time Robinson did stop LaMotta in their last fight for the middleweight title, LaMotta was very competitive for eight rounds. For the first eight rounds, it was even. Right, but he had a lot of trouble making the weight. That plus Robinson's overall skill and endurance and stepping it up. LaMotta eventually kind of like fell apart. He just couldn't keep the pace, you know. Going. Robinson said his his strategy going into that fight was to set a fast pace because he felt that LaMotta would burn out by the 10th round. And, you know, starting the ninth round on, he really took it to Jake. And he hit him with some of the greatest combination punches I've ever seen any fighter ever throw. It's amazing that LaMotta never went down. What a concrete, tough guy he was. Now, LaMotta, right. R Robinson's generally considered the greatest boxer punch in history. LaMotta fought, as his nickname said, the Bronx Bull, taking it to opponents. But this guy we're going to spotlight tonight, Frank, I mean, you know, I never met him personally. You knew him. I didn't know him at all. I ever talked to him. But... You know, one of the slickest, trickiest guy, heavyweights for sure, or any weight, you know, in the 1970s. Uh, and he fought also, of course, into the 80s, but it was the 1970s when he made his mark. The second half of the 1970s, from your patch, Jimmy Young of Philadelphia, we spotlight. Why don't you tell us about Jimmy? Think of this, Jack. Think First of all, Jimmy Young didn't have many pro fights. Basically managed by the mob for a long time. Mismanaged. In his 10th fight, he fights 42-2 Ernie Shavers at the Spectrum in Philly. And he stopped in the third round. They fight a year later in Maryland. It's declared a draw. I've seen tapes of the fight. Young won seven rounds probably, but he was dropped, I believe, in the fourth round. It was declared a draw. He should have got a decision. Think of Jimmy Young, Jack, from 74 to 77. He fought Shavers twice. One, oh, one and one. Should be one and one. Lyle twice beat him both times. Fought Muhammad Ali. Should have got that decision. And then he fights 
Norton or Foreman and Norton, and he beat Foreman. A lot of people felt that he beat Norton, but people were afraid to give that he if he got that decision, the mob would have their hand back in boxing again, and that had a lot to do with why he didn't get that decision. He was a slick counter puncher who never fought as the aggressor. His fights were very difficult to score. And while he was in his heyday, th just think about this. If he gets a decision over Norton and Ali, think of those wins. Lyle twice, Shavers, if, if he gets that decision. So he'll have wins over Shavers, Lyle twice, Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, and Ken Norton. No one other than Ali of that era can claim they beat that many good guys. And before I throw it to you, I'm going to say this about the Ali fight. Young dunked, ducked out of the ring in the 7th, the 6th, the 8th, the 12th, and the 13th rounds. And he was in one, in one instance, I think. And the 15th, right. And in one, I think in the 13th, they deducted a point. Now, Jimmy told me he did that not because Ollie was hurting him. He said he did that just to throw Ollie off and to mess with him. I've watched that fight live. I've watched it a few times since. I believe based on points, Jimmy Young won more rounds than Ollie, probably 8-6-1. I don't ever remember a fight where Ali looked so bad and missed so many punches. And that was because Jimmy Young showed the faults of Muhammad Ali never learning boxing fundamentals and basics. Ali never punched the body, and Ali never liked to fight as the aggressor. He liked you to come to him, then he could time you. He knew where he was going so he could plot where you were going to be. With Jimmy Young... Muhammad Ali was sort of fight, sort of forced to fight like George Foreman for 15 rounds. Jimmy Young made him miss. And think about this. Another thing that Young exposed about Ali is that Ali barely threw body punches. Jimmy Young gave you his body, and Muhammad Ali never even tried to hit into the body. He was headhunting the whole time. Look, do I think that was a great Ali? No, 230 pounds, the heaviest he ever was at that time. If they fight and Ollie's at his best, he wins a decision, but he never looks good against Jimmy Young based on their styles because he'd have to fight as the aggressor. And Allie always had trouble with smaller, Doug Jones, quick-handed guys. The big bruisers he could handle. Smaller, quick-handed guys gave him trouble. And I thought Young actually... Deserved the decision. I'm glad he didn't get it because I'm an Ali fan. But I never saw anybody, not Ken Norton, not Joe Frazier, no one made Jimmy Young or Muhammad Ali look as ordinary and average as Jimmy Young did. A few years before Young fought Ali, Young had had less than 10 fights. Uh, he was basically a no-name, and I saw him fight at Madison Square Garden and lose a 10-round decision to Randy Newman, who became better known as a referee. He was an incredible pro, and I remember thinking it's not so much what Newman is doing. It's what Young's not doing. He was so passive, so defensive. He basically fought not to get hurt, didn't get hurt, lost the decision, and that was that. So to see him improve the way he did was a bit of a surprise. I never saw the Shavers fights, by the way. I should go to YouTube sometime and look at them. But Young, I guess he burst onto prominence when he upset Ron Lyle. That was Lyle, his coming out part. That was right. his arrival. Right. Lyle had earned a shot at Muhammad Ali at the world title. And when Young beat him, it looked like all of Lyle's good work was going to go down the drain. And, <laughs> and he still got the shot. He still got, which was fair. You want to know something? That was fair. He lost the fight. Big deal. But he did so much to lead up to that. I think Ali made the right choice. Give Lyle the shot anyway, and Young will get his shot later on. And that's the way it came out. Uh, you alluded to something that was obvious. Ali just wasn't in shape against Young. 
He was he was completely out of shape. Now Ali's a rarity. He could be out of shape and still conserve himself to go the distance. But it was a pretty dreadful alley. If you believe in the punch counts, if you swear by them, then Ali was an obvious winner to fight because the punch stats heavily favored him, which didn't surprise me now. I Boy, Jack, are you talking about the Jimmy Young fight? The Jimmy Young-Muhammad Ali fight. Young outlanded Ali 222 to 113. That's what I'm saying. Oh, That's no, you said you said Ali outlanded him. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry right. if I said that. that okay, I thought, I thought that's what you meant. I, yeah, I meant Young outlanded Ali clearly. But I scored it finally by one point because of what you'd alluded to. Five times during the fight in five different rounds, Ali stuck, I mean, Young stuck his neck out the Literally ring. stepped out of the ring almost. Let me tell you something. The rules say that if someone deliberately sticks their head out the out of the ring to avoid an opponent that's attacking, that should be called a knockdown. The referee only officially called it once. Now, why did why did I still score those rounds for Ali that won't officially score the knockdown? Uh, let me ask you this, Frank. If you are seeing two guys fight and one guy cleanly hits the other guy on the chin and drops him, but the referee calls it a slip. You might very well score that round for the guy landing the punch because you know what you saw. You might right. say the ref blew it. I'm giving him that round. That was my logic. I was ticked off that he deliberately was avoiding Ali's attack, whatever the reason is. Young could say he wanted to fluster Ali. I don't care what his reason is. It's irrelevant. The point is it's outrageous. That means any opponent in any fight who's in any type of trouble, all he has to do is stick his head out the ropes, and then the ref comes. They should have penalized Young and, and threatened to disqualify. Right, they messed right. up there. Right. Okay, let me ask you this. Had the referee, let's say hypothetically, counted those as knockdowns every time Young stuck his head out, we wouldn't even be having an argument who deserved the decision. All those extra points, that would have been the equivalent of four or five knockdowns. That would have certainly tilted it to Ali beyond the question of a doubt. So if, you, so if, I was, if I'm to ignore Young sticking his head out the ropes, yeah, he won the fight. He, you know, he landed the better punches, was sharper. But the point is he did. So I had Ali actually... One point ahead at the end based on that, not based on punches landed, not looking better. As far as I'm concerned, he should have been credited with multiple knockdowns in the fight. Interesting. And I can't argue that, but all I can speak to is what happened when they were engaged for, say, 43 out of 45 minutes. Allie only landed 27 jabs. He never looked so bad because of the style that Young forced him to fight. Now, see, Young didn't train to do that to Ali. That's who Young was. He would fight everybody that way. It just so happened to be that it was it, it was kryptonite for Ali. It just didn't work. And the funny thing is, and what I've never understood, was they fought in 76. In 71, at the, in the Cherry Hill Arena, after Ali lost to Frazier, they had an alley did an exhibition. Benny Briscoe was one of the guys he boxed three rounds. And Jimmy Young was another one of the guys he boxed three rounds. Now, at that time, Young, Young only has 12, 11 fights, whatever it was. And I always wondered why Angelo Dundee never, never schooled Ali more on, like, how this guy's going to fight you because Young was never aggressive. He'd always make Ali listen to Dundee. Come on, Frank. Do you think Ali would have listened to Dundee schooling him? But um, he, he, he could have pressed him a little bit better that this guy is going to throw some things at you. They're going to throw you off a little bit, and you're going to ha have to be on your game a little bit more. But you know what? They're, they were never, like Ken Norton said, Ali was bigger than boxing then. They were never going to give him the title. And what Young did opened the door for them to give Ali the decision. But you know what the funny thing is? Jimmy Young told me when he was fighting Ron Lyle, he said Lyle called him 
every vile name in the book to try to get him to engage during the fight. He said he insulted my mother, my family, my ancestors, and everybody. He said I knew what he was doing and I wasn't going to fall for his game. And then Young would talk. I would always try to pump him about Jimmy, who were the hardest punchers? And he never veered. I said, the big four you fought, who were the hardest punchers? Rank them. And he said, Foreman, Shavers, Lyle, and Norton. It's just a shame. A lot of people think that Young lost it and he started to go downhill after he lost to Ken Norton. And after he, he lost to lost Norton. Ken Norton, as far as I'm concerned, Frank. Pardon me? I thought Young, Norton got a split decision. I thought Young clearly won the fight. I thought, and you know what, and Jack, you know what? If you look at the three 15 round title fights that Ken Norton had, or one elimination fight, and the 15 rounder with Ali, and the 15 rounder with Holmes, you realize Jimmy Young shook Ken Norton with his right hand more so than Ali or Holmes ever did. But when he lost that decision to Norton, that took a lot out of him. But you know what the you know what the fight was that really killed him, and then he really became a stepping stone. I was in the gym when he got the when he got the fight for to fight Jerry Cooney, and Don King and I heard him say this. Don King told him, "If you beat Cooney, you have Holmes." And Holmes has never been shy about how he never wanted to fight Young because of his style, and he saw how bad he made Ali look. And Holmes, like Ali, had the same trouble with Michael Spinks, especially the first time they fought. Holmes didn't want any part of it. Jimmy actually trained pretty hard, and that was the closest he ever had his weight down to the 77 weight is when he went into the fight with Cooney. And he really trained hard, and he thought, okay, this will be the beginning. I'll beat Cooney, and I'll be back in the mix, and I'll get a shot at Holmes. What's you know, before Jimmy Young got – Before that. Uh, What's that? Ozzie, the two fights with Ozzy Ocasio – he lost those fights. And they were right after Norton when he showed up I real fast. Right. I thought Young deserved the decision in both the Casio fights as well. I thought he did in the second fight. I don't I think Ozzy Ocasio outworked him the first fight. And you know what's funny, Jack? Ocasio, who was short and small in stature, he bothered Young. He couldn't hurt him, but he was real busy like a buzzsaw in spots. And he built up points. But that was the beginning because he had the two stinkers with Ocasio after Norton. And he, then he thought he would get a second reprieve to beat Cooney. He gets in great shape for Cooney. He's actually doing well in the fight. And that was the fight to convince me that Larry Holmes was going to beat Cooney. Then he gets cut and he loses. And I've heard you say before how you look at guys and you look at their records and you say, how many times they've been stopped? Jimmy Young was stopped by Jerry Cooney on a cut. The only other time Jimmy Young was ever stopped was by Shavers in his 10th fight. Talk about, about a guy that had a great chin and could make everybody look bad. It was Jimmy Young. And if he was around today, he, he could hang with these guys today. I really believe that. Yeah. And speaking of uh, different eras and all, uh, we were going to discuss the segment, uh, you know, how, you know, Young would have fit in in the old days without question. He was old school, but not Fleischer. Okay. We were starting to talk a little about him on last, on the last show. And I just want to say, before we get into topics of old timers, visit current guys and Fleischer's ratings, uh, Nat Fleischer was the single most influential media member in boxing history. Absolutely. On, on a way, not even close. No one was even remotely close to Fleischer as far as having influence. He started Ring Magazine in the 1920s, and Ring Magazine was considered the ultimate authority until they had the scandal, you know, in the 1970s, the United States. The Matt scandal. Yeah, some other boxing magazines came into existence in the 60s, which provided what I thought was healthy competition, you know, because it gave us right. more. But not Fleischer was the guy. He was the most respected, the most single respected 
guy in all the boxing. But with that said, Frank, how much can we respect a guy who's so ridiculously biased to the old timers? You, you tell me. Jack, I remember as a, as a 10-year-old kid, 1969. He passed away in 1972, Flash. 72, Matt Flasher did. He started ringing 22. He passed away in 72. I remember reading his ratings for the top heavyweights of all time. And I remember thinking that guys like Bob Fitzsimmons, who he had third behind Jack Johnson and Jim Jeffries, and guys like Fitzsimmons and Jim Corbett, who I believe was fifth, I remember thinking as a kid, 10-year-old kid, looking at those pictures and marveling and saying, oh, my God, these guys probably would have killed Sonny Liston and Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Boy, I wish I was born 90 years earlier so I could have seen these guys. He just made them so big, and they all hit so hard, and they did everything right. They in-fought. They body-punched. They used the jab. They had good defense. They parried. He really was very biased, and he ripped the modern-day fighters. And in 1972, before he died, he published his top 10 heavyweights. Now, help me out here. We had Jim, uh, Jack Johnson, number one, Jim Jeffries, number two, Sam Cor uh, or Bob Fitzsimmons, number three, Jack Dempsey, number four, Jim, Cor Jim Corbett, number five, Joe Lewis, six, Sam Langford seven. Sam wasn't even a heavyweight. Exactly. Sam Langford, Sam Langford seven. Gene Tunney nine, Max Schmeling. Gene Tunney eight, Max Schmeling nine, and Rocky Marciano ten. You know, you know what made Fleischer's heavyweight rankings so difficult when he did it? Anyone who came after Marciano, there wasn't any wiggle room hardly, meaning you'd have to kick Marciano out of the top 10 to let anyone else go. And it wasn't like a guy like Max Schmeling was number 10 that you can take out. Listen, putting Jack Johnson number one, it's a matter of opinion. That was his buddy. That was his favorite was fighter. From his era, Jim Jeffries was considered invincible during his time. It's not a joke of a rating. Jim Jeffries has been given the worst rap on his legacy. He's remembered for the Jack Johnson loss. Right. He's only lost off the six-year layoff. So that that at least makes sense, even though we did we, we could disagree with it. But, but that made it easy for him to put his two favorites there. Johnson Bob beat Jeffrey, so that year he got one and two. But Bob Fitzsimmons, number three, I called up uh, to Ring Magazine offices when I was a kid to speak to Flash, and I just said the kicks, who would have won a fight between Bob Fitzsimmons and Joe Lewis? And he said, well, I think it would have been a close fight, but I think Fitzsimmons would have edged him. His associate editor, Dan Daniels, said, don't listen to the old man. Lewis would have murdered <laughs> Fitzsimmons, and Daniels was an old-timer, so that was nice to hear. Okay, number four, he had Jack Dempsey. It makes sense, at least. Dempsey was considered historically a great heavyweight. The interesting thing is, Fleischer went on record as saying he thinks Dempsey would have beaten Jim Jeffries head-to-head. -head. That was fu funny. And number five, you had Jim Corbett, rated too high, but Corbett was, uh, you know, a heavyweight champion, 1892. So Fleischer revered those old guys. But it's a funny thing. He said Corbett, the number five guy, would have beaten Jeffries number four. Number six, he underrated the brown bomber, Joe Lewis. Keep in mind, we didn't have any Muhammad Ali that came late on. Lewis right now is considered the consensus number two greatest heavyweight of all time. On average, consensus. Ali's considered consensus number one. Lewis consensus number two. But he was of the opinion, Fleischer, when they, I heard when he interviewed him, he thought Lewis would have beaten Dempsey head to head. That's an interesting thing. So why did he have Dempsey four, Lewis six? Lewis actually accomplished more when you want to look at it that way. Now, number seven makes no sense. As great as Sam Langford was, rating, rating Sam Langford as the seventh greatest heavyweight of all time would have been the equivalent of you and I 
putting Sugar Ray Robinson in the top 10 light heavyweights of all time. He didn't fight in that division in reality. Langford did fight heavyweights, but he wasn't a heavyweight, okay? He fought the, the, the black heavyweights of that era, though, and had a pretty good record, even though he wasn't a heavyweight. Yeah, number eight, Gene Tunney, another great fighter. It's hard to argue with number eight, Gene Tunney. Number nine, Max Schmeling, tends to overrate him. Was he really a top 10? He, he's piggybacking on the Lewis victory, Schmeling, historically. And you can't argue with Marciano, 10. So this was 1972. All the guys that came after, Fleischer didn't have a chance to ever rate. And it's safe to say they wouldn't have made his top 10. Tyson wasn't going to make it. Ali was around. Liston was around. Neither of them made his top 10. And Ali uh, was on the second coming of Muhammad Ali. So we knew how great he was in 1970. But he was coming off the loss to Frazier. And, and Fleischer held that against him. Here's my issue, Jack. Now, look. Everybody says in this sport, you can't rate anybody until their career is over. My problem with Fleischer's rate, ratings are, he did the rating in 58. Now, you mean to tell me, Joe Lewis has retired seven years, and you can't look back and process about how great his title reign was, how great of a fighter he was, and you mean to tell me, look, if you want to put Dempsey above him, I wouldn't do it. But in 1958, that's not a big deal. But you want to have Lewis behind Corbett and Fitzsimmons? Fitzsimmons, oh, my. Fitzsimmons I mean, come on. Even, uh, he really wasn't a heavier than the reality of life. No, he beat Corbett one time and was losing the whole fight. And Jim Jeffries, you know, knocked him out twice. And it's, uh, come on. Jack, here's what I see when I see Fleischer's ratings in 1958 and 72. Number one, I don't like the idea that in 12 years, they didn't change. But my issue is this. With, he made them, look, Johnson was his guy, no matter what, no matter who was there, he wanted Johnson number one. Well, yeah. if he makes Johnson number one and he has Jeffries two, that makes the case for Johnson because if Jeffries is two, beating him being defeated by Johnson justifies Johnson. And then you look, he loved Dempsey. Don't tell me Gene Tunney should be number eight. I'm sorry. Well, but the fact that he beat the yeah. fact that he beat Dempsey justifies it. Now, as we go lower, you have to think, Jack, the biggest crime here is this. In nineteen seventy-two, Sonny Liston was dead for ten years. Matt Fleischer saw Liston's run through the division from nineteen fifty-seven to nineteen sixty-two. I don't care who you take on that list. If you go on a head-to-head -head basis, except for Joe Lewis, I would make Sonny Liston a favorite over every well, one of those guys. And he disliked Liston. Oh. He hated him, hated, loved him as a fighter, but he hated him because of his outside life and his connections. Frank, I want to share something with our listeners in regard to Fleischer that you know all too well. A great story, the Ali Liston rematch in Lewiston, Maine. Uh, Ali knocks Liston down, regardless of whether you think it was legitimate or not. That's an argument. Uh, that's a I think the punch was legit, but well, the rest we'll was an act. Time, but that's something we'll discuss in detail another time. But Liston got up, and what most people forget, the referee Jersey Joe Walcott waved the fighters together, and the fight resumed. When the fight resumed, Fleischer, sitting in the first row ringside on the apron, Yelled to Jersey Joe Walcott, the ref. He called him over and he said, Liston was counted out. He was down long enough. You should stop the fight. And based on what Nat Fleischer said, calling Walcott over. Walcott was it was was all by him and did it. Right, because Fleischer was so influential. So he played that part in boxing history. And we could speculate for fun also what might, may have happened had the Ali Liston fight continued hypothetically if Liston took a, if he took a dive up you know and got up and thought he had to get up you know what, what, what was going to happen when the fight you know continued but Maybe. Jack you do realize Liston was never given a count either yeah. Walcott never counted and that's when Fleischer said hey it's over he's been down for 10 seconds I just wonder 
if Fleischer would have done that, if it was Dempsey, and would he have saved that? Would he would he have done that with Dempsey and saved him like that? No, he didn't like Liston, and as much as he was falling out of favor with Cassius Clay Muhammad Ali at the time, he thought Liston was worse for boxing than even the future Muhammad Ali would be. But it's it's like Liston never got a count. They were on their feet fighting when the when when Walcott stopped it due to Fleischer. And I just think it's a crime, Jack, that he, he he was just so biased. Look, O.J. Simpson is one of the best running backs I ever saw. I believe he's a double murderer. But if I'm I'm not going to kick him out of the Hall of Fame because the Hall of Fame is for how good what you did on the field. You can hate listen all you want. Listen at that time. Reason, but I don't think that's the reason, Frank. Fleischer wasn't going to rate Liston because Liston was more modern fighter. And to rate Liston meant Marciano wasn't going to be in Fleischer's top 10. Right. Marciano was number 10. There wasn't any wiggle room for Liston. It wasn't like. But it's just so funny because everything about Liston, Fleischer loved. He loved boxer punchers. Liston was a boxer puncher. With a good jab, he had everything. It was. Let me go. Let me just leave the heavyweights. He had Sugar Ray Robinson, the number five middleweight. Keep in mind, this was uh, when Fleischer passed away. Monzon was middleweight champion a couple of years. Right. Uh, Thereabouts. So a little less than that. But there wasn't Marvin Hagler yet. But I don't think it makes any difference at all. But, you know, he had Sugar Ray Robinson, the number five middleweight of all time. And most people were rating Robinson the greatest middleweight. Now, as time has went by, if we have to rate Robinson in one division, it would be welterweight. Right, right. Number one there. If we had one or the other. But I guess in 72, he thought that Robinson was still a modern fighter and he held that against him. But, Jack, back to these heavyweight rankings. He said he would not rate Muhammad Ali in the top 10 because he would he would often say, where am I going to put him? And the fact yeah. that he lost to Frazier hurt him. But why not put Frazier there? You know what his bitch was with Frazier? He said, yeah, Joe's really good. He's not much of a puncher. If he was a big puncher, he would have – well, he, he actually yeah. always called Ali Clay. He goes, if he was a puncher, he would have knocked Clay out. Let How could you not have Frazier on that list after March 8th? I'm going to just speculate, just guess, okay? If Fleischer was living all these years, if he could live forever, he would be under such pressure to put Ali in his top 10. <clears throat> and to take Marciano out of the top 10 would have been unthinkable. I think he would have revised the ratings completely and said Langford's now being rated as a middleweight. He was. He would have had to have done that. And he'd maybe put Marciano ahead of Schmeling in a revised rating, and he would get Ali in there at like maybe number seven or thereabouts. That would just be my guess. Let me ask you this. What is the mindset to have Schmeling over Marciano? Why? Because he beat Lewis when Lewis was green? Marciano made, what, seven title defenses? Schmeling made what two, and you're going to tell me head to head Schmeling can beat Rocky? No, no way. I remember when they interviewed Fleisch about Marciano, he said tremendous punching power, but little else more. So he wasn't an admirer of Marciano's skills, but you know it's basically the uh, you know the time he came up. But but once again, Fleischer was the most influential voice in all of boxing. But I think. My, you know, people didn't, some people took his ratings seriously, but it became obvious he was so biased in what he was saying. But Jack, he yeah. sent it, he did set the template for, that even exists today where like there are guys who have never seen some of these guys fight, okay. but based on what Fleischer said, they overrate him. Sure. Well, we're going to get back to this more next week and in closing frank i'm just going to say because we're going to be going off the air i rate otto graham over tom brady i think otto graham's the greatest only joking even though it makes some sense what i'm saying okay so i'm, I'm going to go by i'm going to go by who i saw okay and on that time it's impossible to put anybody over brady okay only joking see you next week everyone great time frank <laughs>